Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. And welcome to the second Future Noughts and Topia special with him, Ed Gillespie, and me, Mark Stevenson. This is the second in a special series of cosmic chats with the remarkable planetary defenders keeping our planet cool. Topia is a kaleidoscopic new culture, nature and positive impact magazine where everything goes as long as it's good. Covering everything from design to conservation, it's bursting with perspectives from the world's wildest edges and it's free to sign up too because as his editor Lisa Goldapple says, if anything will save the world, it's just falling in love with it. And we are the Future Nords, me and Ed, a couple of reluctant futurists, authors, uh, and recovering sustainability guys who who love the planet. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's where all our stuff is. Um, uh, so the, the theme for season two, uh, which this podcast is uh, attached to, is the egg. Um, and this time around, we're on a mission to crack life's mystery. So you can expect tales of metamorphosis, wings, feathers, fins, and all sorts of nature-based tomfoolery and excitement, which brings us to our wonderful guest, um, uh, Lucy Cook, who I'm going to let Ed introduce. So yes, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Lucy Cook, who is a zoologist. Um, she is the author of the gloriously original book, Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution and the female animal. Because in the last few decades, a revolution has been brewing. And Lucy introduces a riotous cast of animals and more importantly, perhaps the scientists studying them uh, that are redefining the female of the species. And it's an absolutely enlightening tour uh, of the vanguard of evolutionary biology. And it's certainly a conversation starter. And I have to say, Lucy, I've got the book in my hand here, which I loved. Um, and just to describe it for our listeners, you know, it's got Obviously, the praying mantis, that iconic um, head-munching female of the species, uh, and bitch in huge red letters across the front, which, having been reading this book in front of my five-year-old daughter uh, <laughs> and her friends, uh, who have all looked at the cover and been drawn in by the beautiful image, uh, and then said, what's that book called, Daddy? Uh, I said it's called Bitch, and I've been having to explain it to small people uh, several times in, in, the, in the two times I've now read it. So, Lucy, uh, welcome to the show. Um, Mark, do you want to ask Lucy about the background of this in wonderful tome? I mean, I first came across you, Lucy, because you're very into sloths. You're quite famous for sort of sloth love. But then you took this leap and wrote this quite extraordinary book about not just one animal, but all of us. And I'm kind of interested in the the impetus. What led you to this place? Why did you write it? And what generally have people 
um, thought of it? How's the reaction been? So I wrote it because um, there was a burning need for it, basically. Um, female animals have been marginalised and misunderstood by the scientific patriarchy since Aristotle, to be honest. And I, I was told that because I produced eggs, I was basically a loser when it came to evolution. And because I, I was a female that invested my genetic legacy in a small number of nutrient-rich over instead of loads of mobile sperm, you know, I, I pulled the short straw in the lottery of life because I was destined to be passive, chaste, whereas males, on account of all their mobile sperm, were going to be active, ardent, and the dominant drivers of evolution. So, you know, I thought that was a pretty dispiriting message to receive, age 18, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I mean, ironically, it's bollocks, isn't bo- it? And bollocks is exactly the swear word you should use <laughs> to, to the idea that the production of sperm make males um, uh, more advanced than females. Because, I mean, it is, it, it, it's kind of like insane when you think about it. I remember I remember being taught this sort of universal law, you know, eggs are expensive and sperm are cheap, so females will be chaste and, and, and males will be promiscuous. And thinking, well, if all males are promiscuous and all females are chaste, who the hell are all the males having sex with for a start? Didn't they? <laughs> Just, I just, I was just like, ah, this doesn't make any sense, you know. But then also just like the sort of lunacy that our behaviour would be defined by our gamete size. I mean, it's just, it's so nuts. But there are people walking the halls of universities today who will tell you that that's the case. But there is this sort of groundswell of opinion now that traits associated with sex are a lot more complex than being defined by whether you produce sperm or eggs. That's why I wrote the book, because I was really angry and I thought that it was really stupid and that there was probably a really good story in there. Oh, oh, well, that's a perfectly good reason to write a book. Now, I'm just going to do what I call the Daily Mail question, uh, which is, but on balance, it pretty much is called of that way, isn't it? And, and, and how would you respond? To, it's not me asking that, by the way. Asking for a friend. Yeah, so I mean, I'd say try telling a, a spotted female hyena that she needs to be passive, coy, and chase, and she'll laugh in your face after she's bitten it off. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, of course, there are females that subscribe to Darwin's um, stereotypes of, of 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 the chaste, coy, passive female and the ardent, active male. There are examples that fit that, but there are also increasingly more and more examples of females that don't fit that. And what we're now understanding, it's clearly a, a dance between the environment and and chance that create the bodies, brains and behaviours of animals. So it's just woefully simplistic to think that sex is a crystal ball, basically. Mm. It's also one of the things that really struck me reading your book is actually digging down into that willful cultural blindness of that sort of Victorian patriarchy that still goes on today, you know, and your description of uh, of the group you call the broads, um, these incredible women uh, scientists there's a real heroism isn't there in what they've been doing in terms of challenging that orthodoxy you know one of the, the best things about writing this book with the sort of extraordinary trailblazing minds that I managed to to speak and spend time with and the broads were, were really central to that Sarah Blafferhurdy, Jean Altman Mary Jane West Eberhard and Patricia Goati are the broads and they're basically four trailblazing scientists who have redefined what it means to be female through fearless data and logic. And they have been shot down many times about the discoveries. I mean, Sarah Blafferhurdy was the first to question the myth of the passive female and the only seeking monogamy because she was studying languors and found them to be wildly promiscuous. And instead of ignoring it as some kind of anomaly, which is what everybody else had done up to that point when they'd come across something that didn't fit with Darwin's paradigm, she sort of went, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. I wonder why they're doing that. And she figured out the reason why the female 
males were mating multiply was because uh, it was a strategy to prevent infanticide because males are infanticidal. But the counter strategy is basically to have sex with every male in the neighbourhood, which is positively exhausting. You might find yourself having sex 50 or 60 times a day. So that any male can think, oh, that could be mine, therefore I'm not going to kill it. Exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. There's now 50 or 60 species that we know that use this strategy. Lions, very famously, um, many primates, perhaps even our ancestors. Who knows? Yeah, quite a lot of the Conservative Party seem to use that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah was sort of, the response to her theory when she presented at the conference was being taken aside by a senior male academic and be, and he t- said, sort of said, she's a very attractive woman, and said, oh, come on, be honest, Sarah, you're just horny, aren't you? You know, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, outrageous. It's completely outrageous. And Patricia Goati, who has done so much work investigating Bateman's paradigm and the experiment done by Angus Bateman, which sort of underpinned this universal law that sperm are cheap and eggs are expensive in the 1940s. So she was like, well, maybe we should just check that out and stop citing it for a second mm. and actually like <laughs> do it again, you know, maybe because he was a plant geneticist and it was the 1940s and, you know, things have moved on a bit since then. Anyway, so she went to great pains to reproduce the experiment and found that she couldn't. She couldn't get the same results because there was fundamental flaws in his methodology. He'd skewed the results so that they supported the stereotypes that he was seeking to support. It just doesn't hold water. But yet her criticisms of that fundamental paper get written off because they're considered to be ideologically driven. Mm. Well, you know, think probably Bateman and Darwin were, and they might not have been so honest about it because they might not have realised that they were in the first place, you know? This reminds me of the work of John Ionardes, who did the meta-analysis of lots of science and came to the conclusion that quite a lot was really questionable because of all the opportunities for bias and prejudice and culture and trying to get the result you want creeping in. Can you give us um, some examples of animals that contradict this thing? I'm thinking like lemurs in Madagascar or albatrosses or meerkats in the Kalahari. There's some amazing examples in the book which you go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. They just bust these myths apart. The book is chock full of them. Females that are promiscuous, there are females that are dominant, there are females that are aggressive, there are females that preferentially have sex with other females. And my goal was to show the extraordinary diversity that we see in nature. There was a paper done recently to look for the most murderous mammal on the planet, the one that was most likely to be killed by a member of its own species. And guess what? We didn't come first. Humans did not hog the top spot. No, the meerkat (laughs) hogs the top spot. Because basically, meerkat society um, is predicated on ruthless competition between females who readily kill and eat each other's babies. And that baby-eating bloodbath is kept in check by a dominant female who has a zero-tolerance policy to any of the other females reproducing. So she will basically bully the females to exert her authority if any of them dares to hook up with a random roving male, then she will get her babies killed and eaten and she will evict that female from the colony. And the female's only allowed back if she'll wet nurse her murderous babies instead. Mm. You know, she just spends her reproductive energy on actually having the babies and not nursing them. So she's not passive coy and chase by any means. Darwin and everybody thought males vary hugely in their reproductive success. You'd have something like the stag. He's got his his group of females, which is called a harem, but it really is nothing like a harem. We shouldn't use that word. You might have one that sort of mates a lot in his lifetime and then others that don't get a look in. So that difference drives evolution and females are thought to basically not have any difference they're just all the same because they're naturally good mothers and you know we're not competing with each other at all and and so there's no variance well the meerkat you know 
pisses all over that because you know she's, you know female meerkat uh, i mean you know she she can have um several hundred pups in a lifetime and when i spoke to tim clutton brock who studies the meerkat and and concedes that there is this huge variance there that that in when he studied stags and he said that the most um any any stag yeah, a, a bull that he's known of to produce in one lifetime was 25 so suck on that stag <laughs> You know, sex and sexual behaviours are really plastic. And of course, they have to be because there are all these different environments to adapt to. You need a huge variation in behaviours. And one great example of the plasticity of sex is the albatross. We think of albatrosses as being paragons of monogamy. They'll often mate for life. They spend six months on the wing foraging for food and then they meet up with their partner, have this elaborate dance and then raise a chick together. Uh, And you've got to do that with a partner because you've got to tag team food and it's too difficult to do it by yourself. But there's this colony of albatross in Hawaii where we now know that a third of them are female-female couples. There's a shortage of males and the females are using other albatross husbands as... um as a sperm donor and then shacking up with another female to raise the chick. You know, it just shows this sort of fantastic flexibility and the idea that that sex is deterministic, just completely nonsense. I was really taken by your example of the Hawaiian morning gecko, which uh, you describe in the book rather memorably as a a female-only race of self-replicating lizards, which sounds like something (laughs) terrifying out of sci-fi. Those lizards give birth like a virgin birth is what they call parthenogenesis and so why do we need sex at all lucy if you know we've got an example of these types of lizards that are able to reproduce without men at all well that has been dubbed the queen of all questions you know i mean it is it's the greatest paradox why we have sex because you know the world would be doubly efficient if we didn't because <laughs> it's half as less fun though wouldn't it <laughs> The species that clone themselves are all female because they produce eggs. So only individuals that produce eggs are capable of parthenogenesis. So why don't we just all do that? Well, theory goes that we have sex in order to to two two things. One, to shuffle the genetic deck and create diversity. And that enables species to adapt to different environments over time. And then, of course, the other one is to prevent something that sounds very sci-fi, which is mutational meltdown, um, which is the buildup of deleterious mutations can be switched out during sex. So those are the twofold reasons that we've come up with. So the idea is cloning species have a shelf life of about 100,000 generations before the environment or pathogens or p- parasites does them in, basically, and they can't adapt or they have mutational meltdown. But then you have these creatures like the morning gecko have probably been around a lot longer than that. And there's some species that, that really have been around like way longer than that. So the bedelloid rotifer is the queen of parthenogenesis. She's a relative of the flatworm microscopic creature but holds the record for going without sex for the longest period of time because you may feel you've been through some dry (laughs) dry patches you know i know i found lockdown pretty tough but the bedelloid (laughs) rotifer hasn't had sex in 80 million years (laughs) is that true or does she just feel it's that long (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's something in that, isn't there? Because when I was reading 
about the the morning gecko and the rotifer, it also struck me as a sort of self justification for the patriarchy, in, like to fuck up the world, and then to justify the role of males in providing genetic variation and therefore resilience. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it just, it just seems completely ridiculous and ironic and awful, doesn't it? Yeah, the Deloid rotifer sisters have been managing perfectly well for a very long time without sex. There are all these species that we found are capable of parthenogenesis that we didn't even know. I mean, only last year, I think it was, they found there was um, a condor that it was capable of parthenogenesis that we didn't know. You know, there, there, it seems like in response to hardship and a lack of males, um, quite a few vertebrates are able to clone themselves, which is totally sci-fi and amazing. I mean, there was there was a shark in an aquarium in Nebraska, which <laughs> which shared a tank with a couple of rays and, and had been in that tank for about three years. And then it just gave birth and everybody totally freaked <laughs> out. Was like, <laughs> I really looked at the rays. The rays are like, don't look at us. <laughs> I remember years ago, somebody telling me in a pub conversation that that if all the men suddenly, you know, died out or became infertile, you know, tomorrow, that somehow women would 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 be able to still survive and propagate the race. That human beings could do that as well. Is that true, or is that just one of those? Urban yeah, myths? no, um, humans. Thank God, thank God. I mean, if it's like the last thing this planet needs is self cloning humans, isn't it? I mean, really, even if they were women, you know, I still think it would be a bad idea. There's something about our biology that means that we can't clone. When we first asked you about the egg, the theme of this show. The first thing you came back with was Charles Darwin's obsession with barnacles and their rather crazy long appendages. Because we talked about the cultural biases that got established in science, but Darwin and his barnacles was quite revealing because a lot of that was private research, wasn't it? So he was perhaps more honest uh, and clear about some of these complexities in a way that he wouldn't have been if he was publishing that work. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting when you look at the spread of Darwin's output and certainly his most famous works that were indeed edited by his very prudish daughter, were much more conservative than his sort of obscure monographs like the work he did on barnacles, where he gets positively giddy about the the penis of a barnacle, which is like <laughs> eight or nine times longer than its body. It's the longest ratio to body length um, of any animal, I think. That would give Mark a 48-foot long penis. It's like some sort of X-rated Mr. Tickle. Um, <laughs> like the barnacle in order to fertilise anybody in his neighbourhood because that's what the barnacle does. Um, Darwin writes as you know, how it's coiled up like a great worm. He's really sort of excited by it. And I think even more than that, in some of the letters that he writes to Hooker and, and his other correspondents as he's nutting out the theory of evolution before he publishes um, On the Origin of Species, is that he finds barnacles which are hermaphrodites and then you have these teeny tiny little males that he originally thought were parasites because they were so much smaller than the, the big barnacles that he was studying. He thought they were actually parasites and then he found that actually they were males. <laughs> um, and... Um, he could find everything in between. He could find hermaphrodites and complemental males and and some that were sort of sort of somewhere in between the two. And he and he wrote in one of his letters saying, you know, you will think this the devil itself, but I swear that this is the evolution between a single sex to bisexual creatures. And, you know, so he was open-minded enough to, to see that sex was more fluid, but yet in his later work had a terrible case of Victorianism. <laughs> 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 Branding the female of the species in the shape of a Victorian house. 
housewife. It's interesting, the change in his writing. I remember my marine biology days as well, because I think there's a deep sea anglerfish as well, isn't there, where the male is yeah. very small and basically attaches to the side of the female because it's very difficult to find a mate in the dark, high-pressured abyssal depths. Um, and then essentially atrophies to become a glorified sperm sack on her side. Mm. Absolutely, they're, they're, they're basically swimming sacks of sperm. Those males, and they're, they um, they they fuse with her body, yeah. and she, so she can control everything about them, including <laughs> when they release sperm. I mean, that's God. it's a, it's a horror. It's a horror of an existence. Isn't it? Anyone in a relationship, no one wants that level of control from their partner. If we're going to get into the horrors, then we have to talk about spiders. Um, okay, now. Obviously, there are well-documented procreational hazards uh, of ending up dinner rather than sinner uh, if you are a male spider. So tell us a little bit about um, the, the glory that is sexual cannibalism, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> The kind of question I love to get on a Friday lunch. Exactly. It's the kind of question I never thought I'd ask. (laughs) Darwin writes about it in The Descent of Man with thinly veiled horror, you know, because here's a female who's quite clearly not coy. (laughs) She's quite clearly in charge, you know, and she's the dominant of the species. First of all, female spiders are... And I didn't know this until researching this book. So when you see a spider's web with a big fat spider in the middle of it, that's more than likely going to be a female because the females are the ones that build the webs, do the hunting, live for years and grow large, you know, the greatest engineers on earth. Um, The males, on the other hand, are much like the anglerfish um, male. They are basically, they're just walking sacks of sperm, waiting to, desperately waiting to get laid. They they don't live for as long as the females do. They grow to a fraction of the size. Sometimes in some species, like the golden orb weaver, it's actually 125 times smaller than the female. And often they don't have fangs or even produce venom. You know, sad little walking sperm sacks and they're sort of like, in order to get the female's attention to have sex with her, they've got to make like dinner, basically. So, <laughs> not, know, not just make dinner. <laughs> no, no, exactly not make dinner. They've got to make like dinner because, you know, she's spiders got small brain, got to kind of like register on their sensory spectrum, which is basically by vibrating. So they start off by vibrating like dinner in order to get their attention. And then they have to really quickly <laughs> go signal, I'm not dinner. No, not dinner. No, no, I know. I've got you interested. Got you interested, but just hold the hunger pangs here. Let me stroke your back. Let me stroke your back. <laughs> or, or in the case of the peacock spider, let me do an amazing dance for you. You know, like to dazzle you. You know, in in sort of almost they think perhaps they even the males dazzle them with some kind of like sensory overload. So the females are sort of stuck rigid. They, then you've got to try and get in there. You've imitated dinner in order to get noticed. You look like dinner. You, you, you know, you, and, and, what and could you, and possibly you, go wrong? <laughs> What could go wrong? You've got to get around and sort of insert your petty palps and frequently it goes wrong and, and males are currently eaten before, during or after. Um, wow. I would love to, I'd love to see Match.com for spiders. I wonder how that <laughs> well, Yeah, well, I mean, you, you tell a great story in the book about the fen raft spider and that sort of captive breeding program because, as you say, they've got to be quick. But, I mean, in that story, it was almost impossibly quick, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I love this. I, I mean, I have to say, anybody gets a chance, go to London Zoo and visit the Spider House, even if you're scared of spiders, because 
it is a fantastic exhibit because you were able to walk amongst the orb weavers and, you know, and uh, and you can even chuck flies into their webs. There's a, there's a nice chap there who's got flies and you can feed them and stuff. But they have a breeding program for Fenraff spiders because they're endangered. And Dave Clark, the lead entomologist at London Zoo, he has the onerous job of trying to keep this species alive by successfully breeding them. Well, the females are highly cannibalistic. So he really, <laughs> and he's such a lovely guy, he's really knowledgeable, very funny, and he really feels it if he gets it wrong like so he's got the female he's fed her so she's not hungry that's a good first start with a spider just make sure that make sure the female is fed so then he pops the male in and you know often with conservation work you've got the funders breathing down your neck you know talk about performance anxiety it was all going well the male had gone up he'd sort of gently caressing the female he was like bingo bingo and then in a second she'd fanged him and then he thought it was all over he was like really thought I'd set it up well and there was I'd just thrown him to the lions but then he found a month later to his absolute surprise the female laid an egg sac and hundreds of little babies came out and just in that literally that microsecond that the male had managed to get his petty palp in just as he was being chomped. So in that situation, sort of premature ejaculation really is like an absolute evolutionary advantage. You've got to, you've got to do it before you die. <laughs> Maybe that's where it comes from. Who knows? <laughs> I think the biological term you use are terminal investment strategies. Yes. Providing the mother of your children with a good meal with your own body in order to ensure their success. Exactly. It's not it's not anomalous behaviour. I mean, no. to, to Darwin, it was just seemed this horror. They just in, inexplicable. But as you say, it's feeding the babies that are going to be carrying your genes. And more than that, this amazing woman in Nebraska, Eileen Hebbets, who's been studying spider uh, sex for years, she did this experiment where she, she fed a female spider male spiders, and then she fed them flies of the same way. And the females that were fed males did better and had healthier offspring that lived longer. So she's come to the conclusion there's something uniquely nutritious about eating a member of your own species. But we probably shouldn't discuss that at great length. But... (laughs) I mean, I'm thinking of breast milk in humans in that there's this wonderful sort of relationship between the child and the mother and adapts itself as the child grows. And we've kind of done that at a much more fundamentally horrible level, which is these spiders have developed to be nutritious in a way that supports the growth of the children that they'll never see because they got eaten. <laughs> Sometimes it's even more direct than that. Matrophagy is a thing with spiders. Some species, the female is literally eaten alive by her offspring, like slowly her abdomen is consumed by her spiderlings. So, you know, it's not a lot of fun being a male or a female spider, to be honest. I know what the listeners are thinking. So we've talked about birds and we've talked about reptiles uh, and we've now talked about you know invertebrates. So what about our closest living relatives? Um, What can you tell us about bonobo sexual behaviour, Lucy? Well, quite a lot, actually. I'm I'm a a big fan of the bonobo. uh, uh, And... um... Because for a long time, we thought that chimpanzees were our closest relative. And and so we modelled human ancestry on chimpanzee behaviour, which is patriarchal and warlike. And so that's a little bit depressing, the idea that we're sort of doomed to this aggressive patriarchal system where females have very little agency and are submissive to males, very much so with chimpanzees. But with bonobos, we share the same amount of DNA as we do chimpanzees. They have a very different society, matriarchal and peaceful. And what's interesting is the females are smaller than the males, same as with chimpanzees. So they could be physically dominated by the males, but they're not because they have this incredibly strong sisterhood, which stands up to male physical dominance. And 
That sisterhood is also unusual because the females in it are unrelated. But the way that the, the bonobo females get around being sort of re- aggressive and competitive with one another, like the meerkats, is that they have sex with each other. So, <laughs> and um, it's a particular kind of sex that's called genitogenital rubbing, GG rubbing. And their anatomy has actually evolved so that that is the most pleasurable form of sex. So their clitoris has migrated to a place where it's it gets the most contact from female-female contact. Sexual pleasure is part of the mix. Amy Parrish, who studies them, is pretty sure that they're having orgasms. And, and, and all that lovely oxytocin is helping them bond with their female sisters and, um, and keep the peace. Yeah, there's a wonderful illustration on page 63 of your book of a. Uh, it's not. It's not a bonobo, but it's a. I think it's a baboon's O face. Yeah, it's the only <laughs> illustration in the whole oh, book. It's <laughs> the, the one illustration I've got, and that is of it. It's actually a stump tail macaque's O face. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so we've talked about. Um, <laughs> we've talked about. Uh, we've talked a lot about animals having sex, and can we actually talk about sex itself? And one of the things in your book which blew my mind was animals that will change biological sex and if finding Nemo and and Nemo's an enemy clownfish if that was actually real after his mum had been eaten by a barracuda Nemo's dad uh, Marlin would have actually flipped gender and had sex with his son which you know doesn't strike me as a a massive Disney hit Uh, (laughs) animals actually going I can change sex and some that do it many times a day I believe Uh, there's about 500 species of fish that that change sex and it's quite a cunning um, adaptation if you you know you're trying to find love in the depths of the sea and there's there's not a lot of fish about that if you come across one member of your species you can complement their sex and procreate with them and the anemone fish is one of these. And so anemone fish, you get generally um, a male and a female who are often monogamous, actually, um, occupying a, an anemone. Sometimes that relationship can last 30 years. Like anemone fish are doing really well in the relationship stakes. But anyway, so they have male and female, and then there'll often be a couple of juvenile males in attendance. And if you take the dominant female out of that situation, then the male will turn into the female. There's lots of fish that change from being... Uh, female to male, but this is one of the few changes, male to female. The change happens first in the brain in that the fish starts behaving like a female almost immediately and is recognized as a female by other fish. But its gonads take up to a year to catch up. So the gonads remain majority testicular tissue and then slowly over the course of a year, they they transform into ovaries. So what's fascinating about this is it means that you can't assume that biological sex dictates sexuality, sex behavior, or even sexual identity, that they're uncoupled. Um, And of course, that's the sort of, you know, the big debate at the moment. Is gender the same as biological sex? We don't have gender in animals because we can't ask animals what sex they think they are. You know, you you can't, but actually with that fish, you can. Uh, it's basically saying I'm a female, but it's still got testicles. So it's really interesting to see how our assumptions about how biological sex and, and its linear relationship with sexual identity and sexuality um, are, are also naive. You sort of come to the conclusion, don't you, towards the end of the book, that it, it's obviously manifestly non-binary. Nature is manifestly non-binary with those two extremes, at either end of the spectrum of male and female and everything else in between. And I mean, you obviously reference um, Gene Roughgarden's Evolution's Rainbow where saying there's actually potentially multiple genders out there as well, even if we can't interrogate them or interview them um, in, in regard to their gender. It's clear that there is this whole spectrum of possibility. There is a binary in that the, the sexual gametes 
are either egg or sperm. But the manifestation of sex is a spectrum. I mean, it's anything but binary. I mean, and, and, and sex itself... To think of it as a unitary phenomenon is naive. There's sexual identity, there's sex behavior, there's sexuality, and all of these things exist on their own spectrum. I mean, sex is a fantastically and gloriously complicated thing. This was not the conclusion that I expected to come to writing this book. You know, I was really surprised to come to find that sex itself was incredibly plastic. It makes sense. Of course, it's going to be. It needs to be in order to be able to adapt, just like any other trait, to to the changes in the environment. And of course, it's going to be plastic. And also that that plasticity really means that, that males and females are basically more alike than they are different. Darwin drove a wedge between the sexes by focusing on differences. And we're kind of obsessed with it culturally. For 40 years, we've been looking for fundamental differences in the brains of males and females and can't find them. You know, they don't exist. We're sold on the the idea of males are from Mars and females are from Venus. We're kind of in love with this concept. But from what I can tell, everything that we're finding out now is is just bringing us closer together. And aside from essential reproductive differences, we're made of the same stuff. We're made of the same genes, the same hormones, the same brains. We are more alike than we are different. One would hope that, that equality should be just around the corner. So Lucy, you've got this diversity of all different approaches to sex in the, in the animal kingdom, from animals that change sex almost at a whim to those that clearly are adapted to their environment to be definitely male and definitely female. Um, I guess when you kind of look at sex in the round and, and human society and whatever, does that sort of lead you to a, a position of loving everybody and all their glorious diversity? Or do you think there is some basic truths here that we just need to acknowledge? I would say that, you know, sex is, is highly plastic and extremely complex. And, it, and it's a lot more complex than just whether you produce eggs or or sperm. My book illustrates the extraordinary diversity that sex has across the animal kingdom. And I think when you see the spread of sex and the manifestation of it in nature, it makes sense of human variation. I mean, for example, when you meet the mole, who I open the book with, right, the female mole has ovotestes. Her ovaries are half testicular tissue and half ovarian tissue. And the ovarian tissue makes eggs and the testicular tissue doesn't make sperm, but it makes tons of testosterone that makes her dig like a demon. It also means that her vagina seals up outside of the breeding season. She's pumped full of testosterone and she's got bigger male gonads than she has female gonads, but she's still a female. So when you understand the role of diversity, then I think that helps us understand human variation. You know, all of it is normal. You've got to have variation because if you don't, you cease to evolve. And one day we might need to be living underground and I might need to grow a pair of balls in order to do so. Do you know what I mean? So in the first chapter, I go into how sexual differentiation and determination happens. And it's an incredibly complex antagonistic system that's quite frankly, extremely leaky. And it produces tons of variation because that's what you need in order to evolve. So I would hope that people reading my book would have a better understanding of this human variation that we're struggling to understand and to understand that it's all normal and that sex is incredibly complex and and often is incredibly hard to put into one of two neat binary boxes, no matter how hard culture wants or needs us to do that.
Mm. I was going to ask you what your next plans are, but I'm assuming that's not live underground and grow a pair of balls. <laughs> well, no, I mean, in terms of your work, you've written three books now. You're getting a, a reputation for this type of, you know, meticulously researched, powerful provocation. Where are you going to cast your expertise and experience next, Lucy? I'm looking at the male of the species, of course, because Darwin stereotypes do as much of a disservice to males as they do females. And there's a whole lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about alpha males and, and I I've got a good good title, so um, cock and bull. Our science got males wrong, yeah. <laughs> cock and bull. So, Lucy, what I have loved about all of your answers and talking to you is underneath it all, there seems to be this incredible generosity and understanding of, of complexity. And therefore, that complexity makes me almost kinder and more understanding and more flexible and, and loving of of the world. And to me, that sounds like a world of good, which leads us on to the thing that we do at all the end of these podcasts, which is what is your world of good? <laughs> so we're going to ask you some quick fire questions mm-hmm. to finish off. In your world of good, you know, what uh, what book, you know, do you think everybody should read because they had a profound effect on your life? So we're going to do a few of those. Is that okay? okay. No, no, I'd love to. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Lucy, a book or a book that had a profound effect on your life that you think everybody should read? A book that had a profound effect on my life is... Life on Earth by David Attenborough. As a small child, that and the TV series blew my tiny little mind and introduced me to the glories of the animal world and the concept of evolution and gave me goosebumps and still does. What must we protect, Lucy? We must protect biodiversity. Every single form of life on this planet is necessary and brilliant and has probably spent an awful long time evolving to be there and we should respect it. Okay, what do we need to delete? Greed. Okay, good answer. Yeah. Uh, where's your happy? Where's your happy place? The rainforest. Okay, what aren't you scared of, and what are you scared of? I'm not scared of spiders, but I am scared of maggots. <laughs> okay. Favorite motto. Carpe diem, seize the day. Ah, carpe diem. It's about those uh, those goldfish that can't remember everything, anything, so they have to do it immediately, isn't it? <laughs> Have you got a simple life hack that, that you want to share with people that helps you feel good or productive? Is there a thing or a trick you have? Yeah, it's the one that got me through lockdown, and that's throwing myself in the sea all year round. Cold water does amazing things for, for washing away anxiety and bringing on belly laughs instead. Yeah, amazing. What animal or critter superpower would be useful to you? Oh, well, I've always quite envied the slow Loris's poisonous elbows because I thought they'd be quite useful on the tube. <laughs> Um, how would you want to be remembered? Oh, as as a lot of fun. Marvellous. And, and lastly, we, we are creating a playlist for Topia. Um, what is the last song you'd want to hear during your time on Earth? Peggy Lee, is that all there is? Uh, a great answer. So buy Lucy's book. It's amazing. It's an incredible read. It will blow your mind. It will stir your loins. It will do all of the things that a great book of wonderfully researched stories uh, and evidence will always do. And the other thing you have to say about Lucy's book is, you know, it is a, it is a science book, but actually it's just a cracking, good, funny, well-written, very generous read that will have you chuckling along and turning your page as much as any Dan Brown or Stephen Fry. Oh, thank you very much. Up there with the male authors. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's still a dominant hierarchy, isn't it, in publishing? 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, totally. Factual books and by women are just not read in the same volume as, as they are by males like Stephen Pinker and Malcolm Gladwell, you know. So, yeah, we need to change that. You and Mary Roach, I think, should be, uh, you know, going out with those elbows and slaughtering a lot of male editors. <laughs> you know, that's, what I, that's why I need the slow Loris. It's not for the tube, it's for the publishing industry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, on that murderous note, uh, Lisa Cook, thank you very much. So. Ed, how are you feeling? Oh, well, I'm feeling very relieved that I'm not an arachnid. Judging by the sexual cannibalism experiences of your average male spider, it makes actually being a human look quite attractive. I think what I loved about that interview was just the drawing back of the veil and seeing how much of our perception of the animal world has been shrouded in our own prejudices and perceptions of how we've seen the world through this sort of patriarchal lens. There's a great uh, Marillion lyric, and uh, regular listeners will know that. I'm a prog rock fan, so quoting Marillion is perfectly acceptable. Although the last few albums have been a bit rubbish. Um, Controversial. That's me trolled now for the next 30 years by Marillion fans. (laughs) Um, But uh, there's a lyric in one of their songs where they say, um, you don't see the world as uh, it is, you see it as you are. Oh, that's an Anais Nin quote. Raging plagiarist, suit of thoughts. (laughs) I think you're told another 10 years now as well. Um, I, I think it's also the kind of the marvellously heretical nature of what she's doing. As you say, it's revelatory, but it's just like it goes so against the orthodoxy. And you hear about all of the challenges that those amazing women biologists have faced, the blatant sexism and, and dismissal of their science. Yeah. Even in the supposedly empirical evidence-based world of science, there's all sorts of quite unpleasant cultural biases going on. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by even her saying, well, I wasn't expecting to find out that sex was this plastic. And then she goes, but actually... If- of course it is, because it has to be. I'm reminded of JBS uh, Haldane's observation, and he said there are four stages to acceptance of new ideas. And uh, number one is, this is worthless nonsense. <laughs> and then number two is, uh, well, this is interesting, but it's perverse. <laughs> and then uh, the third point is, uh, well, this is true, but it's not very important. And then the fourth uh, stage is like, well, I always said so. I thought it was a brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think we always circle back to that Gloria Steinem line, don't we? So the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> what a good way to end this episode with the Gloria yeah. Steinem uh, quote. So what's coming next? So, uh, well, firstly, uh, to win a copy of Bitch, Lucy's amazing book, uh, do please follow Topia at World of Topia on all the usual social media channels. And if you've ever wondered just what this mind bender of a universe is all about or want to be entertained with inspiring positive stories, fall down the rabbit hole hole on worldoftopia.com where you can sign up to the newsletter for free which is called a world of good and it is good uh, you'll hear from us again for topia in season three uh, but mark you want to kind of tee up something for the rest of the future not gang indeed so uh, we'll be back with topia for their season three a third episode from just me and ed and an interesting guest but finally uh, the news you've all been waiting for is that season four of the full fat future noughts with, um, what's that guy called? The comedian. Um, um, Ron. Ron. Ron Jitterson. Yeah. That's, I, th- I thought we were going to get Joe Lysett in for this series. Well, no, I've, apparently he wasn't available. He's got a bit too big. So we, we have to go for, you know, who's got time on their hands. Well, it's probably going to be John Richardson in the future knots, we hope, unless we can find somebody more famous and entertaining. But, uh, an important thing to know is that season four will be very much about us interacting with the listeners again. There'll be fewer guests. There'll be more future naught and John action. And we're looking for you to ask us questions and we'll do our best to answer those. Clearly, we've got to do that because the news has been so incredibly quiet, hasn't it, Ed? There's been absolutely nothing happening. Yeah. I'm lost 
for words. I mean, you know, sometimes I just sit here twiddling my thumbs going, what is a futurist supposed to do? Because we are living in the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, I mean, there's literally nothing going on. No. This is why we have to fill our time with doing podcasts, just yeah. to have a reason to get up in the morning yeah the future is panglossian i think that sounds like one of lucy's creatures it's probably find out a panglossian <laughs> you know changes sex every tuesday and uh, and and likes to um likes to pleasure itself on tree bark or something i don't know <laughs> mark just revealing his inner secrets right well rub yourself up against the future nonce for season four um so i think that's it from him ed gillespie say goodbye ed goodbye and uh, from me, Mark Stevenson, always a joy to be with you. And uh, we look forward to being with you again. Bye. Ta-ra. 